guys hello and welcome back i'm jojo fraser it's time for a mojo injection episode 78 so let's do it let's be all in push the ego aside listen with an open mind um stay curious all these great things that's how we learn that's how we grow that's how we keep changing and um, for the better and we become the best version of ourselves and that's what we want to do right we don't want to be afraid of growth you know the kids got um their first report cards of the year um, and we were chatting and I think the seven-year-old was a bit like oh I, there's room for growth and I think she was a bit freaked out and I was saying no there's room for growth you know when you're 90 we are growing all the time and that is part of our key to a happy healthy life is being excited about growth and that's why I love this space because we talk about mistakes we talk about trauma we talk about lessons and how we move on and this week holy sweet moly I have Natalie Carez who is one of the amazing women I helped to coach on the lead up to the TEDx talks um, Natalie was all over the press um, a while back when her partner which is just insane stabbed her um, when she was eight months pregnant um, it was a brutal attack he didn't just stab her once it was countless times um, and she has put up a fight an inspirational fight for survival she's the author of still standing um, she also does amazing work to raise money for the air ambulance who helped her in the time of horrendous need um, and uh, raising awareness about stabbing and, and knife crime she's just a force of nature and she got the first standing ovation of the day I mean all the women were incredible bold and brilliant women um, but Natalie's story really is just a miracle it really is and, and we share deeply and I, I'm just really honoured to have had time to get to know her and spend time talking about her resilience and her attitude and it's really lovely if you if you can tune until the end or, or watch this uh, listen to this and, and set parts as and when you can which I often do on the run you know you've got a great podcast or audio book and sometimes it takes a few times to finish but really hang fire to the end and, and it's not easy to listen to in parts but I think going through a process like grief and trauma um and how you can come out the other side is just so powerful. So you're in for a, a lot of inspiration and I'm so thankful to Natalie for making the time and for being so supportive and um, yeah, she's a queen. So I wanna do a shout out first to Float Philosophy um, who are supporting this episode. They are on the west side of Edinburgh. They're amazing, they're one to watch. I booked my float, I was out there last month. A few of you have been out since, well, in fact, I don't know how many have been out since, but I know a few of you have. And um, I've absolutely loved it. It's so good for the mind and the body to just shut all the senses off and in this experience what you're actually doing is it's like you're floating in inner space you're lying in this little cocoon in the dark just floating no music no lights no sound and it's magic and i'll be going back out soon it's so good for us to stop and slow down to speed up so you can hear more about that and read more at floatphilosophy.com and i will be getting Nick, the incredible founder, onto this soon to talk more about the research and all of his great things he's up to. But yeah, let's get back to this episode, guys. Um, so still standing, you can check out Natalie Carez. Um, you can get her book. You can find it all about what she's up to as well. Um, but I think we should just have a chat with her now. So 
let's do it and just massive congrats again you should look out for a TEDx talk which will be going around YouTube shortly if not already right I think we're rolling hello hello how are you I'm good thank you I'm good just yeah, getting by, mum of three and everything else. Yeah, I, it's been amazing getting to hear your story and getting to know about your kind of background and about your like resilience. It's just so inspiring. And the first time you sent me your story, I was just in tears. It was just, wow. I, I just... I get so blown away by human beings and it can be so easy to focus on all the negative in the world. But when I hear a story like yours, I'm just like, wow, like there's power in humans. We are magical, resilient beings. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, I've been, it's three and a half years ago since what happened to me happened and I've spoken about it so many times and sometimes a degree that I forget the impact on others who've not heard it Mm -hmm. and then I get that reminder and, but it is that positive story that as horrific as what happened to me back in that day in March 2016 that there's so much good that came from that day as well with the people that came to my support, to my aid and the people since then you've supported me and helped get back to being where I am today. It's it's amazing because when you think back to that time and you know people will see the link to your talk, your amazing talk at TEDx about you know having you know you get up one morning you know you're with your partner who you love, you're pregnant, you're excited about the future he's showing you affection you're taking the kids to school you have no idea what's in front of you i know and i think people find that really hard sometimes to take in or believe because um there was literally no warning and he you know there'd never been any abuse in our relationship no emotional abuse no physical abuse um there had been nothing in his behavior that day, as you say, quite rightly, we woke up next to each other, I'm eight months pregnant, you know, and he actually pulled me towards him, cuddled me, twinkled in his eye, and it was very much like, oh, later we'll have an early night, you know, all of that sort of thing was just, you know, talking about what we were gonna do later, what we were gonna do that weekend. Um, even as far as I talked to him as I was shopping in the supermarket that morning, I was off work, and we were talking about what we were going to have for brunch on the Sunday, because it was Mother's Day. So the Sunday after the attack on the Friday um, was Mothering Sunday. And we were literally talking about, oh, okay, I'll well, get some smoked salmon in, or we'll have some. You couldn't have got more ordinary. You literally couldn't. That's just, it's crazy to think. So you're, you're going out and you're you're going to meet him and it's all fine and with with the attack you know and and you'll see in the video and a lot of people will know the story because it was all over the press i i kind of remember it i think but you know what it's like there's there's so many 
tragic stories that you hear um, sadly the world is a crazy place isn't it yeah. but you when you t you speak and you talk about walking under this is it, was it a bridge or a walkway well i'll go through this tree-lined alley so um i decided to walk into something that afternoon so um, my partner had phoned and said about coming to a bank appointment with him in the afternoon to sort some money out and he was running late so I decided to set off and walk down he was wanting to pick me up and as I was walking down and I was on the phone to him he told me stuck in traffic I got to this place called Trinity Hill and Trinity Hill is almost like a cut through down to certain town centre it's like a big steep downhill tree-lined alley that goes into a dead-end road but I hesitated I went down there because there's a memorial to a girl who was murdered there 20 years before. Weirdly, that year was actually her 20-year anniversary. And I remember her murder clearly. It was a New Year's Eve and I was back from university. And I hesitated and thought, oh, shall I go that way, even though I could see the town centre directly ahead? Or shall I walk the long way around, which was in front of the church, which Trinity Hill runs behind this Holy Trinity Church. And Trinity Hill behind it. And I just shook off my fears because I just thought, for God's sake, Nancy, you're being ridiculous. It's a Friday afternoon, it's three o'clock, and you know, there's people coming up and down the hill. I'll never forget a woman carrying her shopping bags up the hill. And I have no idea who this woman is, but I remember actually seeing her shopping bag either hand. And I thought, but she's a woman on her own who's just walked up there and clearly has no problem. So why am I making an issue out of it? And so I set off down this very wide, tree-covered uh, archway alleyway, which is when the attackers start to follow me. That is just, and I guess we all have that feeling of when you're walking and it's a dark night or an area you're uncomfortable with, we'll all have different levels of an anxiety. So some people, you know, can go running in the woods. I love trail running, but I never go on my own because of all the movies I've watched and the stuff in the press. Um, but when you hear someone running, some people are just like, oh, it's just someone running. Mm. It's fine. You know, let's not let the anxiety get the better of us. And then some people will be like, ah, oh, that person's running for me. But it was like you just had this deep gut feeling that something wasn't right. Yeah, it was, I was about halfway down and you, you, I could suddenly hear these scuffling footsteps while I was sort of running towards me this morning trainers because it's quite the way it's sort of scuffing on the floor and I remember looking over my shoulder and it was raining so I had this umbrella up so I was obviously trying to glance and look under the umbrella at the person and all I could see was this guy really scruffily dressed and his head down and his hoodie with the hood right at the face almost sort of pulled right and as you say he could easily have just been running to go to the town centre mm -hmm. but there's something and it genuinely was like a sixth sense it just made me think he's coming for me He's coming for me and I, I, I quickened my pace because the tree-lined alley comes out into a dead-end road and I thought, well, I could see that a car's parked and there was a building, there's a, a Christian hall thing on the left-hand side. And I thought, if I could get to where that building is, I'll be right by windows, which must have people in there and there's cars parked up, so there's people around. And so I just sped up walking as fast as possible, trying, as we all do, you don't want to give that air of fear. So yeah. Well, I'm walking quickly, but I'm making sure they don't think that I'm running from them. But I am picking my pace up, and obviously I'm eight months pregnant. I've got the most 
ridiculous wedge boots. Typical me. Didn't go into town in my trainers. Um, eight months pregnant in the rain in a pair of wedge heeled boots. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to go down this steep slope going, oh gosh. Um, and I get to the dead end road and I actually for a second took a bit of a side leap, you know, thinking I've made it. But that's when I could sense him right behind me. You know, it's that, it's that invasion of your personal space when you don't need to look, but there's almost like a physical field from someone else that's coming to yours. And I just knew he was right, right behind me. And, and I stepped to one side of that whole, please go past, please go past. Um, but I think deep down I knew it was a highly dangerous situation because it was a wide area that we were walking on. He didn't need to be right behind me. And even me stepping aside, it was a futile attempt at hoping beyond hope that he was going to go past. And, um, and he didn't because the next thing I knew, he jumped on me from behind and pulled me into him. And that, I mean, I guess at that moment, and, and we know now the attack had been planned, but in your head at that point, you're thinking, they just want my money or they just want my purse. Yeah. Because actually, um, the first thought I had was, um, I'm being mugged because my handbag was actually on the side that he jumped on. So it's on my right shoulder and he jumped from my right hand side. So his left arm came over me and pulled me towards the left side of his body. So he like almost touched me under his left arm. And I thought he's, he's gonna just pull my handbag off. Mm -hmm. So I was almost struggling to try and get my handbag off my shoulder to get him to let go. Um, something I'm showing actually here, which I haven't really shared very often, and um, I think it covered in my book, but the, the other thing that crossed my mind was that the way his arm came across my shoulder, his hand, cupped my right breast mm -hmm. and for a split second I thought is this a sexual attack is this somebody who has a thing for a pregnant woman you know and it's the fact that his hand cupped my right breast and it was such a personal place that his hand had ended that I thought oh you know that's stiff enough this is a sexual attack and clearly now we know the attacker you know was my partner for him that probably moved movement in my breast wouldn't even cost his mind but me thinking it was a stranger you know that felt a real invasion of my body and and that must be just so awful and I'm thinking because when I when I see like my husband out and about I'm thinking of like he's his body frame his shape you know people but you've got this big guy Hood up. I mean, so did you not see his face? Did he have a? Because you can see, like, he didn't put a mask on or anything like that. No, he got the hood pulled quite far forward. The thing that really threw me was that he had a rucksack on his front, mm. so he actually had four tops on, yeah. and under the hoodie top that he had on as the last layer, yeah, which was a hoodie top I'd never seen before, he had a rucksack and. In that rucksack was spare clothes and spare shoes. Mm -hmm. So it padded him out massively. So all of a sudden he was a slim bloke. But these four tops yeah. with the rucksack that was underneath the final top made, made him seem like this really bulky, big fella. So as you say, the senses of feeling a body that you would recognize mm -hmm. 
you know, you've got somebody who's multiple, I think it's like a, a t-shirt, a shirt, a jumper, and then the hoodie. And between the jumper and the hoodie was the rucksack. Wow. So his physical frame mm-hmm. actually was disguised. And were you scared to try and look at him in the face? Or did you just not even, because of the way he was kind of holding you? you so glimpsed the side profile. And the thing is, just as I suppose, was looking at him, or when, because the way he was holding me, um, he, he was almost turned slightly away from me. So he'd got me under his left arm, turned slightly away. Turned slightly away now, as I know, because he was pulling the knife out of wherever it was that he got it concealed. Mm-hmm. And so by the time he turned back more towards me, and he's just over my right shoulder behind me, all I'm focusing on then is the fact oh. that I can see this big carving knife. Oh my goodness. That is, and you're just watching, watching this knife come straight down into my chest and the disbelief of I'm actually being stabbed. You know, it's, <laughs> first thought, he's going to hold me up with the knife. You don't need to do that. No, it's straight in. So the first blow you knew, in your head, did you just think, this is an attack, he wants to kill me? Or what was going on? Can you remember in your head, were you thinking, this is it? Or no, I'm going to fight this? Or uh, what goes through your mind? Um, it was, I was going to fight this. Because to be honest, um, after now thinking, right, okay, this can't be just a mugging. This is somebody who's wanting to hurt me. Mm-hmm. Um, my head was obviously going all over the place thinking, what the heck is happening here? Um, and the biggest question was why? And I was actually, while the attack was going on and the two guys, the two guys that came running to jump in and try and help, they said, as I was, that apparently I was actually screaming that at the attacker, why me? What have I done to you? What have I done to you? Because I was trying to work out Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it might be, you hear these horrific stories of psychiatric patients who have got out of a unit and for some reason just randomly stabbed somebody. Um, we had it in Birmingham Centre on a bus. A young schoolgirl was stabbed to death by a psychiatric patient for no reason. She hadn't done anything. So I thought I was the victim of a random attack and it'd be a few blows, but then he would give up and maybe turn the knife on the other people who were on the hill. Mm. Um, but it was soon apparent as the progressed that actually um, I was his, his intended target, except I couldn't understand why I was his intended target. Mm. So you had the guys to help you, thank goodness, but mm. there was a point where you were lying and he, the guys got him away, but then he came back. Yeah, so two guys came running to my aid. Um, one who'd been walking up the hill towards us. So this mm-hmm. poor guy, let's put it in, this guy was walking back from work, headphones in, and he said he glanced up the hill and he saw the attacker jump on me. Mm-hmm. And he thought we were mates messing about at first. He said, but I will never forget your face. He said, the look of pure fear Mm. on your face he said and I saw the knife and obviously you then had to make a choice whether he was going to run or come and help and he came to help so two guys jumped on him and pulled him down so first of all we've now gone smack onto the pavement I'm eight weeks pregnant my bunk has gone down obviously hard and heavy he's in the the attack is still holding on to me still stabbing me until one of them held his arm back with the knife 
which distracted the attacker enough to let go of me mm -hmm. to get his own arm back. So I thought, great, you know, I, I've, I've got to get away. I've got to get away and manage somehow to get to my feet. Mm -hmm. They reckon I'd been stabbed 20 times at this oh. point. So I get up, pure adrenaline, got me mm -hmm. to my feet. I'm staggering down the hill looking at my own injuries. I can see the town centre ahead, this horrible, surreal moment, like a, like a horror film where you can see everybody having a normal life ahead of you, like a nightmare. Mm. Like, help, I'm in this world here. Can someone mm. come into this world? And I collapsed face down. And as I came round, I couldn't stand again. So I had to drag myself to a pillar to prop myself against. And that's, as you quite rightly say, is when he broke free of the two men that were holding him. And from their reports, they were obviously in fear of their own lives, which is totally understandable. He was wielding a big knife that he was clearly no worries about using. Um, no of him because he turned the knife towards them as a threatening action. And they said, but he calmly rolled over, stood up, almost brushed himself down, picked up the knife and walked down the hill to where I was. Didn't run. This is the man who's been wrestled by two guys, has stabbed, as we know now, his partner repeatedly. Mm -hmm. And he stands up and walks, which is a very cold and calculated. It's not running at me in this head up adrenaline step, walking towards me. And yeah, I, I just remember opening my eyes and seeing him walk towards me and thinking, oh my God, he, he's coming back. <laughs> He's, he's coming back again. Um, it's funny, going back to your point, you asked me about the face. Um, when I saw him stand up at this medley of men, male, three male bodies, and then he stands up at the three, I caught a glimpse of his face at that point. And I actually thought, oh, it's Bob. He's come to help me. He's come to save me. Excited. I remember that feeling of excitement that Bobby had miraculously got to Sutton, even though I thought he was stuck in traffic, as he told me, and he'd come to save me. Hmm. But then when I saw the knife and the fact that obviously it's the same, he's very padded out, mm -hmm. I remember thinking, oh, don't be stupid, Nasty. It's an Asian guy who looks like him. It's not, not him. Mm -hmm. And I refused and I didn't know this until I did my PTSD therapy, so I'm a post-traumatic stress therapy. Mm -hmm. I got really angry in that therapy going, but I'm not looking at his face. I'm not looking at his face. Even when he walked right in front of me mm -hmm. to stab me again, I couldn't look him in the eye. And my psychologist pointed out, she said, I think it's because your brain had worked it out at this point that it was oh, him. Wow. And in order for you to survive, you had to block out that it was him. All I had to do was survive and fight this attacker. If I then tried to take on board that it was Bobby, it would have been so devastating. Yeah. I'd have given up my fight. So my fight for survival is very clever what our brains can do. Wow. My brain locked off looking at him because it must my brain knew obviously that I couldn't process that information. Oh, that's powerful, isn't it? Yeah. And how long did it take? So when he came back, and you're you're probably are you thinking at this point where are where's the ambulance or where's the police or? I was just thinking, how is this ever going to stop? 
I remember thinking, how is this going to stop? Because bear in mind, I've had two guys pulling off me. And I'm thinking, I'm aware I can hear people were now starting to appear. Mm -hmm. um, again, I'm not looking at anyone else apart from I'm looking at his hand with the knife to see, because I'm trying to obviously shield off wherever he's stabbing me. Um, and it was, it was like, okay, so, you know, my attack lasted nine minutes from the very start to the point that he was pinned by the police and arrested. It was nine minutes. And I can categorically say it was the longest nine minutes in my life. Um, just, it's a long time anyway, but it's, it was so long. If it, to be honest, it really felt like it was never going to end. Mm. I, I can only imagine, you know, that it's just, uh, and, and for, because we spoke about the air ambulance noise, how hard that is still for you to hear, because it's part of that memory, isn't it? Yeah, because um, when, when they're trying to give me first aid and they told me, they first of all told me the ambulance is coming. So I've got police officers who are on the scene, arrested him. They're now pressing on my chest. They're tourniqueting my arm, trying to stem all the bleeding. And they're trying to keep me talking, keep talking nasty, because it's desperate to keep me conscious. And they told me an air ambulance is coming in. I remember thinking, I was like, I just wanted to get to hospital as fast as possible. But I will never, ever forget lying in the back of the land ambulance and hearing the chopper come in and that rotor blade and that sound. And also when they loaded me onto the air ambulance, the sound of it taking off. And um, I do a lot of charity work raising money for Midlands Air Ambulance still. And I was at an event, gosh, a couple of months ago. And they bought my helicopter in, the exact helicopter that airlifted me. And it came in to land and I just stopped dead. You know, as soon as I heard it coming in, hmm. stopped dead. And when it had to go off again to another job and when it took off, I did stand there literally with tears streaming down my face. And all the staff, bless me, Midlands Air Ambulance kept moving, Natalie, Natalie, we're really saying you're okay. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm fine, I'm fine. But it triggers so much that it... The noise of it literally puts me back into the back of that helicopter at that moment. It's just, yeah, and, and it's funny how sounds or music or feelings or smells um, or images can just stick with us, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like having um, the certain photo points in time of, um, I have a very clear photo point, as I sort of say, of the police officer, Cassie, she's Process. she's talking to me and it was the um she was talking to me about the attack and all of a sudden i clearly remember she went everything in front of me went sheet white like literally like looking at a white screen mm -hmm. and cassie was like a black outline it's literally like somebody draw on the, the white screen this black outline of her and i remember the absolute fear saying to her Cassie, I can't see you. And all her features were drawn, her mouth was there, her eyes and her nose. It was literally like somebody drawn a line sketch of her. I was going, I can't see you, I can't see you, I can't see you. She's going, Natalie, keep talking to me. Mm -hmm. And it was that pure fear, because I think that's one of the points I was very close to not being here, was people talk about a light or something else, but actually that snapshot stays with me of this sheet, bright white, no detail apart from her being this outline, talking to me. Wow. Crazy, crazy. 
goodness. So from there, you know, you're taken to hospital and you're you're unconscious or are you? I was actually conscious for a lot of it. So um, the air ambulance crew came, came running. They said, it's quite weird, they said, they were so convinced that I was going to be in cardiac arrest. They thought my blood pressure was so low, my heart was literally going to stop working. They said that we, every chance we thought you were going to be either dead or in cardiac arrest, about, about to die. So they, they came, literally came running, getting to the back of the land ambulance, all ready to perform a cesarean section, which is an incredible thing. They were, yeah, they were going to perform a cesarean section. If I was in cardiac arrest, they, in the back of a land ambulance on the road, they would have performed a cesarean section to get the little one out. And they come running in, and I sort of open my eyes and go, and they were like, we're, up, we're from the air. I was like, yeah, hi. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, she's talking. <laughs> she's, actually, she's actually talking. It's like, yep, it takes a lot to stop the talking. <laughs> but um, I was so scared of dying that I focused on every little detail. So when I was in the helicopter, I was focusing on a bit of what was outside, focusing on the monitor in front of me, because all the time in my head, I was thinking, I can't die, I've got my children, I've got my... I kept thinking, about, I've got two older girls already, and I kept thinking, I can't die, I can't die, I've got, um, as I call them in the book, Emily and Isabel, I can't die, I can't die. And therefore, I stayed conscious pretty much for the whole thing. Now, obviously, there were moments I must have passed out, and I know there were moments I blacked out, but my fight to stay conscious just stuck there until we landed. I even remember them running... As soon as we landed, they got me across the road from the helipad to the hospital, to the A&E, and they were running down the corridor. It was like one of those films with the lights going over your head really, really quickly. And I always remember the doctor shouting at the top of his voice, going, straight to theatre, straight to theatre. And they, they recognised I had less than five minutes left to live when we landed. So it was a case of running me straight, and they did, they ran me straight to theatre. Wrong. And do you know what they what they did to keep like with that crucial five minutes? Was it getting blood into you? What was it they had to do? Yeah, well, they had a um, they had a line in me, um, which the paramedics on the land ambulance crew they they battled hard because obviously when you lose so much blood, the first thing that happens is obviously your veins shut down to your mm. arms and legs. So trying to put this this cannula in the whole time because it was a case of getting fluid into it, get the volume up in my blood <laughs> so they're putting this in and um, I'm struggling because I remember them kept I got my eyes half closed and they're putting it in putting it in, putting it in. they're going sharp scratch Natalie you know how they always say sharp scratch sharp scratch when you're getting it and I can't remember how many attempts they had at putting this thing in and I opened my one eye and I looked at him and went mate you don't have to say sharp scratch I've just been stabbed lots of times just, <laughs> just <putting it. laughs> I was thinking that exact same thing but I'm like that it's just amazing that you've kept that spirit and that sense. Yeah, well, they said they get, look, looked at me and went, she making a joke. <laughs> She's supposed to be nearly dead. What, what is she doing? Um, but what in that time was, it was pumping as much fluids through. On the helicopter, they now carry blood, as a lot of air ambulances now do. Back then, it was still only saline, so salt water, but it was a case of having a volume mm -hmm. of something. Um, 
I always think of myself like um, a watery squash drink. That must be what my blood was like because it was so diluted. <laughs> but um, and it was a case of just I had oxygen, obviously. Um, but my whole right lung had collapsed. So that in that time of landing and getting me to theatre, it was literally a case of trying to knock me out as fast as possible. One little funny anecdote, to be fair, and again, I've not shared this in the talk, was um, they obviously had to call obstetricians, and um, so we've got gynecologists, they're obstetricians for the fact I'm pregnant and they've got to deliver the baby, they knew they had to deliver her. Nobody thought she was going to be alive, but, um, and they've got midwives and everything else. And I always remember, I'm lying there, I'm pretty much as good as nearly dead, they're just about to knock me out. And this, this little lady who was the obstetrician suddenly appearing between my legs, essentially, between my knees. And she's there, part, and I'm obviously on my back, and she's there. And she said, Natalie, I'm going to deliver your baby. You know, as in, we're going to do an emergency section, we're going to deliver the baby. And I just sort of half nodded at her. And she goes, but um, I need to put this catheter in. And I remember thinking, what, now? Now? No, and literally, she, without warning, she went for it and inserted this cup. No pain relief, nothing. <laughs> I remember lying there going, I was just thinking, could she not have just waited till I was going to be unconscious in the next two minutes? <laughs> but it's funny that I got indignant that this woman was putting a catheter in after I've been stabbed 24 times, I've had lines put in me. But, um, and it's pain. I, I remember I got one put in with Bonnie my first child, and I remember it was agony. I don't it know what, is. it is sore, isn't it? it is. I didn't care what else I'd had done. All of a sudden I remember thinking, oh my, she's putting it in. Oh. I have no idea to this day why she couldn't have waited just the one, literally, but afterwards, they got that big, obviously, vat of anaesthetic as they do and just knocked me out with the words, Natalie, we're putting you to sleep now and you won't wake up till at least tomorrow. So I was, I was warned that they were going to put me into a coma. And I just nodded. So I remember thinking, just knock me out. I was so desperate to just, I couldn't fight anymore. I, I'd literally had fought so hard to still be. I remember thinking, just want someone to take over now. I need somebody. The relief of being knocked to sleep was just huge. Um, and I'll stay on until the next day in critical care. Um, how long were you out for then? Do they decide like how long they put you out for or how does that work? I think before before they knocked me out, they had no clue how long they were going to do it for. Um, they just knew that I wouldn't, they weren't going to bring me out of being put to sleep that day. So um, on timelines, I think I went into theatre probably about quarter past four something like that quarter past 20 past four they knocked me out um theater apparently i came out about 10 o'clock that night out of theater sort of five and a half hours in theater um they delivered the baby about five o'clock so i had been in theater 40 minutes odd before they actually delivered her because it took that which goes to show how much work they had to do to even stabilize me enough to remove her um but um I, they, I think they did scans while I was still unconscious and they just made the decision. It was the following about mid-late morning, I believe, is when they brought me around. So I was probably only in an induced after surgery for 
13 hours, something like that, 30, 12, 13 hours. Wow. And did you remember, was that when they told you, you know, she's alive, she's, she's mm -hmm. here? Was that pretty much straight away? It was literally, um, it literally was pretty much the first thing. I remember coming around, the nurse asking me if I knew where I was. That was the first thing. Natalie, do you know where you are? And I nodded and um, sort of mumbled the QE. Um, weirdly, the hospital I was airlifted to was the hospital that I worked at for my own. I worked in the pharmaceutical industry, so, um, you know, I recognised the hospital anyway and I'd remembered landing there. And I remember the QE and she went, that's right. And that's first what she said is, Natalie, you've got a daughter. Um, she survived. And I remember just lying, being really happy, but really confused because I knew that I'd been stabbed in the stomach and in the, particularly in the baby bump itself. And therefore none of us thought she was alive. I remember the paramedics, I remember the uh, ambulance crew all asking me, Natalie, can you feel the baby? And she wasn't moving. She literally wasn't, wasn't moving. So I'd almost blocked it out of my head thinking she's died and I can't think about that. You know, it's, it's, I've got to cut off that. So when they're me telling me she's alive, my head's kind of obviously completely overjoyed but at the same time thinking, hey, what, 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 <laughs> she's, she's alive. And, um, and it was just this fantastic news. And then they told me how poorly she was. So then it sort of goes from being elated to, oh, actually it's not guaranteed she's going to survive. You know, so it was, she was still critical. And so, yeah. Wow, what a, what a crazy mixture of emotions. Did you get to hold her that day? No, I didn't. Um, I was in critical care at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. Um, next to the Queen Elizabeth Hospital is the Birmingham Women's Hospital, but it's a totally separate hospital. Um, the QE hospital where I was has no maternity and has no neonatal care. So um, Leah was actually in the women's hospital. So she was in neonatal intensive care over there. So we were in completely separate hospitals, completely separate buildings, both in intensive care, both in able to, I had a chest drain coming out of each side. She was in a coma as well. She stayed in a coma a lot longer than I did. Um, the best I saw of her, first time I saw her was Mothering Sunday, which I said was the Sunday of that weekend. So attack Friday, out of coma Saturday, Sunday, um, the midwives came over with a Mother's Day card from her, you know, which mm. there's all these wonderful charities and organisations that just incredible things that make such a difference to the person receiving it. So they, they got this charity who put together this whole pack um, for mothers of Ujib, premature babies who can't see them. And in that was a card from Leah and there was a photo and that was the first time I saw her was on Mothering Sunday itself. And it was a photo, a photo of her. But I didn't physically see her till the Tuesday night. So it was five days, really, in effect, after she was born, four or five days. And when did you get to hold her for the first time? Thursday. So she was almost pretty much a week old before I got to actually hold her. Because she was That's still being ventilated, so... That's tough, you know, it's, um, and, and when you talk about singing to her, you know, don't worry about a thing, did that just, was that like a mantra for you, you were, you were holding her and singing to her? Yeah, so that first time, 
Um, now you'll get me emotional now. Whenever I talk to her, okay, <laughs> you'll get me emotional. Um, so the first time I actually saw her, they had to push me in a wheelchair um, to see because I couldn't walk and I'd only just had my chest strains out. And I remember she's in a coma and they said to me, you can still talk to her because she can hear you. And even though I didn't sing to her that day, I remember having my hand in the little plastic box and going, sweetie, I don't know, it's mommy, you're going to be safe. Mommy's here, everything's going to be all right. And I, was, I did say to her, I can't tell you why this has happened to us. Because obviously at that point as well, I had no idea what was going on. or So I have no reason why this happened, but everything's going to be all right. And then it just stuck. And when we eventually got put together in the hospital, um, I had, a, had my phone, which obviously had music on, and I'd had Bob Marley, Three Little Birds, on there. And every day, A, it's a very chilled out song, and B, I played it and I sang that, you know, as you just sang far better than me. Um, I won't do it. <laughs> and, um, and it's to convince her, as well as I think probably as much to convince me. So it's reassuring her everything's going to be all right, even if she couldn't understand what I was saying. It was that soothing, everything's going to be all right, don't worry. Yeah, horror uh, music. If only Bob knew how that song would impact and your life, and I'm sure many others with their stories, how how that would be of comfort for you. Yeah, I think I literally it became almost such a routine thing, and even now, you know, I, I actually have it on my playlist on my phone. It's just sat next to me now, you know, and I still listen to it now. It can still bring a tear to my eye. Think about, you know. Every morning in hospital, I remember it was doing her nappy, playing that, holding her, singing it into her head. When we got home, it was very, very hard coming back to my house because it was the house that I shared with my partner. So all of these clothes were in the wardrobe. The bedroom was pretty much as I'd left it that morning, you know, and how he'd left it. So, you know, all of these things, if you can imagine, you know, like what, your husband or partner might leave lying about in the bedroom. All of that was still there. Partly as well because I asked for nobody to move it because it, it, what you know, my family obviously offered to clear it away before I came home. Mm-hmm. And I said no, I wanted to do it. Um, it was like a grief. Mm-hmm. I think the closest thing to relate to it is somebody losing a partner and you having to face all their stuff in the wardrobe and face all their bits and pieces, their slippers on the floor, and you know, their pajama bottoms under the pillow. But you don't want any, equally anyone else to touch it. So as painful as it is, part of your healing process is to, when you're ready, box it up yourself, bag it up yourself, yeah. and not have that taken away from you. It's a bit of a spiritual process, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, it was, and I, um, I actually wrote a letter to him when I eventually got his stuff and put it into boxes and suitcases. Um, I wrote a letter. Do you know what? I wish now I'd taken a photo of that letter with my phone because I can't actually remember what I wrote in it. I just know it. I was very much portraying across to him how utterly devastated I was and that I couldn't believe that I was sat in our bedroom packing his clothes into a suitcase while he was in prison and you know I was sat here bringing up our daughter 
and make my own whilst recovering from this attack. Did you did you get the letter to him? Was it? Well, it's gone in his belongings, and this is the thing: he he might not see that until he gets released, because it's somewhere in all of his belongings, and that were returned to his mother's house. So, if they found it, they might have taken it to him, or they might have disposed of it. You don't know, because obviously there's a big thing with the family who didn't approve of me. Um, so, whether he'll actually ever read that letter. I don't know whether it will be when he's eventually released from prison. I, I don't know. When you found out, was it when you came around? Because obviously you find out, you know, your baby's alive, so you're elated, but then you're you're knocked because you're thinking, well, she'll be okay. When did you find out it was him? Was that after you found out about the... Yeah, so I think after they told me about Leah being alive, I drifted back off to sleep. Um, when I came back round, there's just a really horrible loneliness because none of my family were there. So you can imagine, you've come out of theatre, you've come out of a coma or whatever else, or anybody who's come around for an operation and you're lying there and nobody's there and you've got no family members and I've come round twice now, you know, in effect, because I've had the, um, the nurse, you know, talk to me when I've come out of the coma and the doctor be there. I've gone back to sleep and I've woken up again and there's still no one there. And it's that horrible loneliness and there's just these very official looking people and this nurse saying to me, Natalie, there are these police officers here and they need to talk to you about the attack. Um, so I hope you don't mind. I know it's the last thing you're going to feel like, but they have to talk to you because obviously, to be fair on the police, you know, it's a massive criminal investigation. They have to talk to me before anyone else is allowed near me in case it changes anything. And, um, and then they came up and asked me what I remembered and I told them what I remembered. And then they said that the person that they were holding at the police station was, um, was Babel Raja or my Bobby. But um, yeah, and I was just absolutely devastated. Um, I mean, there is a twist which when I talk on the TEDx, I don't go into because of time allowance and things like that, was that when that policewoman was working on me and pressing on my chest and I said, I all went white and I nearly slipped away. It was actually because she said to me, um, so I was saying, has he gone? Because he was literally arrested next to me. So he's lying face down pavement next to me. And I can just see his feet in the corner of my eye. And again, my brain obviously trying to protect me, I wouldn't look down at him. I wouldn't look at him. And all I said to the police officer was, have they taken him away yet? And she looked and she goes, they're just taking him now. And she said, Natalie, do you know who that is? And I said, and even though I've blocked everything out of my head, I said, I think it could be my partner, but it can't be. And she did actually say it is. And it was the point that she said it is, was the point that everything went sheet right. Because it's almost like my body just suddenly went, what? Boom. And then weirdly, I think when I came back round, because then I got really scared I was gonna die, and thought, I literally thought, this is it, I am going to die. The fear of that and thinking about my kids brought me back. And then I almost shut it down. I literally would not entertain the fact 
at that it was him and in the helicopter I did actually ask the doctor I knocked him on the leg I was lying down and I knocked him on the leg and I was going and I remember asking him I said the police said it was my partner did you hear that is that right that he said and it was because I didn't want to accept and I was going did you hear that did you hear it was my partner and he blessed me very professional and not wanting to distress me, he just said, I, I don't know, Nancy, I don't know who it is. They've arrested someone, but I don't know who. So I was still in denial, even that point, but obviously my head knew, but it was only, the only time, and that's why I talk about in text, the fact that I felt destroyed was because I'd been in denial until literally the police said to me, it, it is your partner. And did they work that out quite quickly? Do you think he told them? <laughs> He told them what it was at the scene. The reason they worked it out was obviously, I remember them asking me my name and my address mm. and they asked him obviously the same question. Uh, and he, and he just said same address. Yeah. So what, what's scary is obviously now I've been in a situation whereby someone I love gets really bad mental health and they change and they push me away, but never obviously, to this extent um, and they were hearing voices like you're not safe around me and you know it was a really tough time um, mm. but it was never you know what you've been through is like a night it's a nightmare it's it's not just someone pushing you away saying mental health or they're in a really bad state so they it's like as you said it felt like a calculated attack mm. um, and that's really, really hard for you if you've, you know, you're together for how many years before this happened? The thing is, I'd known him uh, as an actual couple. It was only a year and a half as a couple, but I'd known him 25 years. So I'd known him since I was a 15-year-old. We hung out all the time. My best friend married his best friend. They used to go on family holidays all together. And all through the years, he was an integral part of this wider group for years and years and he was always this kind loving man almost slightly subservient you know like he wanted to please everybody and um and only after the attack i learned that really in many ways he was playing us and he was just creating to be the best person so if you met me you'd go what a lovely educated polite man and so kind so nice and everybody had that opinion of him but he might have told you one thing about a particular situation. He'd tell someone else a slightly different version. Mm -hmm. And he'd always tailor it that whoever he talks to, mm -hmm. that person would have the best opinion of him possible. So even if it was loose, it was a case of whoever met him, he was the nicest guy. The number of people I've had since the attack say to me, oh, I, I met... I knew your Bobby or I met um, I met your Bobby once or I play, or my husband played football because Bob played football played football with your Bobby what a lovely guy <laughs> mm. and you know what I thought that too because if I thought he was a raging murderer I probably wouldn't have got pregnant by him but you know <laughs> <laughs> it's it's scary because you've gone through that initial grief of but it's not just grief it's like he's away 
but also he's completely betrayed you and also he why are you even in a relationship that was real because it felt real to you but who was this person yeah and that's the thing because i literally looked back right through to knowing as a teenager and thinking well did any of us know the real him you know i mean i i friends with Guy friends with him over 30 years, you know, they started secondary school together and they were a very tight group, really tight. And um, so much so they've actually visited him in prison because I don't think they could accept almost at first that he'd done it because it just was so different to the man that they knew. And, um, and I did, I look back at my relationship and because I found out lots of things afterwards, I'll be honest, I I dug every detail I could. So in my recovery, I asked questions. I asked different people different questions. I looked into different things a lot more deep, a lot deeper than I'd ever had. And I uncovered a lot of lies that Bob had told me. And the Christmas before the attack, and he told me he had to go to Pakistan as a last minute thing because he has a legal issue over some land he had over there. And he ended up staying out there. And there's this whole elaborate story, including that he's apparently got arrested in Pakistan and blah, 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 all of this story. And he ended up not coming home till New Year's Eve. Completely missed Christmas. Completely. It's a big thing for me and my children, Christmas, you know, a huge thing. And he missed the whole thing. And it was only, crikey, it was in the August after the attack was in the March, where I eventually found out that all of that was a lie. There's never any court case, he'd never been arrested. He was at a family wedding, basically. He was at a family wedding, which happened. He'd known about for months. Um, he'd had the tickets to fly out for ages, although he told me he literally only got the tickets that day that he had to fly. There's so many lies that came out, and exactly what you said, I was so hurt thinking, well, what was real? I remember literally crying, thinking, I can't cope with learning about a lie because everything seemed to be a lie and I had trusted him because we 25 years of knowing someone, I trusted him and it was so, so hard to know that somebody could deceive you to that, to that level. And you know, I talk a lot about rejection and how we bounce back and we learn from it, but this is more than rejection. This is a brutal attack. And it, it's kind of thinking, right, you're probably going in your head, what did I do? What, what, why? Why me? As you said, when he was doing it and you didn't even realize it was him. But it was like, I guess in your head, you're, you're just so confused and, and you're so just overwhelmed and you're trying to put all the pieces together and you're trying to raise the kids and look after them and you're trying to heal did you have was there like one piece of advice that stands out for you or at some kind of comfort that that helps you through the kind of process of picking everything up initially i think the biggest thing for me was accepting and learning the fact that anybody who goes through trauma no matter what it is no matter what level it is um the mind's key reaction to trauma is to inflict guilt and that all of us will feel guilty so you might be in a big car accident and you'll start thinking well what could i have done differently why did i drive that route why did i do this and all of a sudden you're turning something that might think 
that you could have done anything about, but you're starting to turn it to you. And my psychologist really helping me understand, Natalie, all this loading, this guilt on yourself of going, well, why didn't I see any signs? Why didn't I see it? Um, how could I bring a man like that into the house when my children were? How could I get pregnant by a man like that? And I class myself as a really good judge of character. How did I let myself get deceived? And then in the end, she was like, you have to stop. Because first of all, nobody saw it. And that's why everyone keeps saying to you, he's a lovely man. And I know it winds you up when people say that. But actually, that is because that's how he betrayed himself to everybody. And actually, you are now doing the classic trauma reaction, which is, I'm going to feel guilt. I'm going to take some guilt for all this pain. Well, I must have done something. And I think that was the best piece of advice was to say, no, actually, this isn't real guilt. This isn't validated guilt. This is guilt inflicted by the trauma response. And knowing that helped me not beat myself up so much and get trapped. You could, you know, you could easily get trapped yeah. in some horrific self-deprecating cycle where you are literally putting yourself in the end down. And while you're trying to recover, you're already down here. Mm -hmm. And instead of building yourself up, if you're then beating yourself up for everything, you're dragging yourself even further and further, further, further down. If you can stop that slide by accepting, no, 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 this isn't real. This, I, I am the victim. I have not blamed. I'm the victim. This guilt is not mine. You can start building up. It, it, that's powerful, actually. I would say everyone I've interviewed over the years uh, was speaking to someone a couple of weeks ago and it had me in tears because she was talking about when she lost her baby at, um, and then had to give birth to her and the first thing she said when she found out the baby had passed was I'm so sorry to her partner and I said why did you say that and she said because I blame myself and I'm flooding with tears she's flooding with tears and we're going it's not your fault it's not your fault but it's so true it's like this part of our crazy minds that self-sabotage and what did I do and, and it's just that was power in that statement that guilt is a natural reaction but it's not the right reaction yeah. and it's understanding that that to challenge when you can accept that and understand it then whenever you have these thoughts stopping yourself mentally and thinking actually is this a reasonable thing to be thinking and or is this just my response and it really is and and inadvertently you know things can get said where people don't mean to add to your feelings of guilt but it can because um you know a good friend of mine madeline black who's um lovely scottish lady too <laughs> like yourself um but when you talk you know and she talks very much about victim blaming and unfortunately we do sometimes without thinking do that when we talk to each other and because I'll ask people who go, did you see any signs? Which is a natural question, were there any signs? I'll say no. But there must have been something. But there must have been, there must have and like, hang on, and you always feel like going, hang on, hang on. One, there wasn't anyway. But two, even if there was, does that make it then partly my fault? Because there had been a sign. And if you're in that natural mindset of having that guilt in you because traumas are Trauma has produced guilt, like I said, about that lady, that horrific experience of losing a baby. It only takes something like that, a question of, you know, 
well, you know, for somebody like losing a baby, well, did you not feel the baby move? You know, and, I don't, mm. and then it's like, oh, hang on a minute. It could be a really, somebody won't even realize, you know, yeah. the impact of that question, but actually as a victim, you are instantly reading any question as, hold on, is that because that's partly my fault? And it's, that's such a good point because when you're in that natural but wrong guilt mode, any question is. And that's why this will be really useful advice for people that are trying to help people with trauma because we see things unconsciously. Um, we're not mindful of our words. We just pick up these patterns that are really dangerous. And we need to challenge that so that people know what to say and what not to say. Yeah. Oh, I know. I mean, I always, I always fundamentally believe if you're a victim of trauma, whatever the tra trauma, um, there seems to almost be this green card to people around you to ask you anything in the world or make comments mm -hmm. that ordinarily would be classed as an inappropriate thing to do. Mm -hmm. But I don't know why there seems to be this thing that it almost like opens these flood doors of people to question or make comment about things, um, you know, that it's just inappropriate. I, I put it in my book even about the fact that, um, I, you know, obviously I lost a lot of weight after the attack, you know, as you would because of the trauma and stress and everything else, you know, sort of obviously rapidly lost weight after having had the baby. You know, people would be like, oh, you are looking thin, you are looking thin. And then when you're managing to eat a little bit more and you might look a little bit healthy, but then people go, oh, it's good to see you put on a bit of weight. Oh, it's good to... I don't I, I would never go up to you and say, oh, you put on a bit of weight. I <laughs> but because it's a victim, it's like there's this green card to suddenly go, mm. <laughs> and I don't understand it. And it's what you say, it's people thinking about the impact of their words. Um, I mean, the most insensitive thing, to be honest, I was ever asked. And um, if this particular this thing, then I'm sorry, but I don't apologize for that. What you asked was insensitive. I mean, I've written it in my book, was the fact that my neighbor at the time, we lived next door to Bobby and I, um, Leah was a couple of months old, I think. I go in her car seat, I was just coming to the house, and she stopped to chat, you know, how are you doing, blah, blah, blah. I put the car seat down next to me and I'm on my drive talking to her and she goes, well, um, so is the baby his? Fun. Well, you know, people are talking and wondering why he did it. And so um, just wondering, is the baby his? <laughs> and you're like, have you just literally asked me that? Have <laughs> you just asked me? <laughs> um, are you asking if I'd like to go on Jeremy Kyle um, <laughs> or the former show that was Jeremy Kyle? Oh, and I, I was in such disbelief and, and almost to justify it. She goes, well, you know, people are talking and they're wondering if the baby was actually his and that's why he did it because he found out the baby wasn't his. <laughs> oh, <laughs> just... my goodness. Oh, the things, it's just, we're in a crazy world at times. <laughs> Kindness. Kindness, think before you speak. And I guess for you, like, was the, so were you approached by the publisher to say, do you want to share your story? Because I know as an author myself that, that sharing 
and writing a book so really it can be an amazing process where you do heal from yeah uh, like all the hard things um whether that's a non-fiction like our books are non-fiction or a fiction where you're you know you're putting off your stuff but in other characters but did that help you with the healing process writing it i think um because when i the, the whole part of writing came about was um my sister when i was still in hospital um and i'm all bandaged up this hand so badly damaged i'm all and i'm left-handed with my left hand all bandaged and my sister came in with this notebook and she said i want you to write your feelings down at which point I nearly told her where she could stick said notebook because I was just lying in hospital going, well, for a start, man, I can't write because my hand is bandaged and it's my writing hand. And secondly, are you joking? I've got enough on my plate to not write it down. And um, she laughed this day. She said, you were so rude about this because <laughs> I used all sorts of words like I was doing that. Yet, typical me, I then reflected. And then as the days went by, I obviously taught myself to write with my other hand. And I started to write little bits of feelings down. And then that developed into a diary. And as I started to find out more and more about these lies and this deceit, and therefore there's a much bigger picture here than just my attack, people started going, you should write this into a book. And so it was about a year after the attack, I started to use the notes that I've been writing every day. Um, and also jotting down all my memories of everything before the attack and right back to when we were kids. And I started to type it up and I had a computer program and I started typing it. And I'll be honest, at days I was in tears. Um, as I'm sure you can relate to, I was writing certain sections and I literally could barely see the computer screen because I was crying that much. Mm -hmm. um, and people be like, should you put yourself through this, Natalie? You're really putting it through? And at times I questioned whether it was healing me because I felt so awful yeah. writing some of it out. But now, or not even now, when I was editing it, which was obviously another year on, mm -hmm. I suddenly looked back and it really made me see the journey yeah. that I'd come on. Mm -hmm. And that was a big part of healing for me was to think, oh my gosh, I've really come on from this broken shell that I've been writing down in my notes to the person who first started typing it when it was just poor at me and I'm crying on the computer to now being another year on and thinking, okay, so yeah, it did heal. It did heal and it did help. Wow. Will you write more books? Um, I've been asked this few people, so how are you going to write? Because I write quite conversationally. So anyone who listens to this and then reads the book, They'll probably hear my accent, God, oh, poor people, but you'll hear this brummy accent come through. Um, and it's quite personal and conversational, so I don't know whether I will. It might be that a few years down the line, because there's a whole, the book ends, I faced my attack on my ex-partner. I, I went to the prison and spent a whole day face-to-face with him. The book ends the day that I see him, so you hear all about what happened, and it ends with me walking out of the prison. So that's kind of... So there's a whole, even though there's an epilogue that gives a bit of what happened after that, there's still a whole, there's such a journey that could still be told since then. Um, and an even more powerful sort of message of showing people. And I'm still on that journey. So I can't write yet because I feel I'm still on that. 
you're still, I mean, it was 2016, right? So seven years, it's still fresh and, and you've learned so much and it's been amazing to sort of work with you in the lead up to Ted and, and see you just like owning your story and just really with that intention to help people. And I guess there's probably still no answers. You know, you had the full day in there grilling, why, why, why? Do you feel there was one thing he said that day that gave you a bit of hope or almost an answer or? I think it wasn't so much what he said. Um, it was his demeanor at the time. It was really hard to accept that. Um, I, I probably still had this hope that because he said it was a temporary, they call it temporary adjustment disorder, that all the pressure had caused him to temporarily lose his mind, even though it's completely premeditated, planned to have everything. Um, and therefore he acted out of character, as it were. Um, so I thought, well, if I go to the prison, if that's true, then when he's faced with me and with my injuries, and I took photos of my injuries, fall apart because he's going to be so horrified that he's now facing me, I'm the victim, that he'll see my injuries and he'll fall apart crying and sobbing. And he wasn't. He was very together. He was almost detached. He talked to me almost as if it was someone else. At one point, he got irritated because he gave me an answer. And then I said, no, sorry, I don't buy that. You've told somebody life, just like, I don't. And he went, oh, well, I almost thought, what's the point of you coming here today? Because I knew you wouldn't believe me. <laughs> Hang on a minute. Little flash, you're getting annoyed at me. Mm. You're getting annoyed. And to that extent, that really helped because actually... Um, I saw this man who was very much in control and all this innocence, I lost my mind, I'm the, I'm the victim of my mental health that I was out of control, all of a sudden that was taken away at that visit because I saw this man who was very together with what he'd done mm -hmm. and it, so since then I've been having learned even more of his lies that I feel there's probably even more serious psychological issues than what was ever first portrayed and actually he's a lot more calculated and weirdly I suppose that did help with my healing because it made me be able to say Natalie you've seen for yourself he isn't the man that you thought he was for 25 years this is a man who's a colder harder person than you ever how long will is he away for how long is he I could use that enough um he got 18 years um, with a minimum term of 12. So he's, he's eligible for parole from 12 years, which is just horrific, I'll be totally honest, because that's, what, less than nine years away. Um, and the protection of my baby, who will only be entering her teens, potentially when he's out. Um, I've already got it in place that he's not to come anywhere near her, but the fact is, is she's a vulnerable teenager with him out. And it's just ticked a bit. I wish they'd set it as 18 years fixed, so at least she'd been an adult when he came out. At the end of the day, he's, he's an exceptionally dangerous man. He, he was very together. I spoke to him on the phone as I went to meet him. He talked to me normally. He was at work that morning. He wasn't showing any signs of agitation, yet he knew what he was going to do. So this is somebody who's being normal, he even bought his lunch half an hour before it. Okay, so this is somebody who's that 
I hate to use the word evil, but it is essentially that. Who, if you're able to eat. Yeah, to, to go and buy a meal deal <laughs> and have it in your car. Um, and although he didn't apparently eat it, but he was all sat in the car, the prawn wrap and a custard tart and a drink of some sorts that he'd bought. Um, but he'd gone and bought, he'd gone around the food hall, um, Marks and Spencer's food hall, he'd bought it all. Um, and I just think if you're that controlled, like he was controlled during the attack, you know, walking toward me for the second time, not running, not a man who's lost his mind, possessed. I don't feel the sentence has reflected enough about the psychological state or person that he is and the mm. danger that he poses. And um, that's why I'm hoping that he'll be there for the full 18 years. I hope at some point they will look at how dangerous psychologically he is. I don't think 18 years is very long. No. It started at 30 years. Um, started at 30 years because the judge in his own words said, you are a very dangerous man. You are a dangerous society. So it started at 30. And then just as I thought, oh, thank God for that. We started at a really good point. Um, they said, but you pleaded guilty. He's like, hang on, he was caught at the scene with the knife by police officers. <laughs> he didn't have much choice to plead guilty because he was there doing it. Um, so they took a third off, oh. um, which is the full tariff for pleading guilty. So it went to 20 years. Oh, no, you, you'll love this because the best part was he had all these testimonials about what a good bloke he was from lawyers and accountants and doctors that he knew. Um, Actions speak louder than words. Yeah, and he's even written a letter to the judge that got read out saying how he was so sorry about what had happened. Um, and he had a further two years taken off, I quote, for good character. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so obviously, you know. It's going to be, there's going to be thoughts there, but you need to focus on you and, yeah. and moving on. And you said something to me recently about feeling like you had an angel there with you. Yeah, very and much so. Tapping into that deeper sense of that. And it was the 20 year anniversary and you very much felt. Yeah, and funny, you even said I get goosebumps now talking about, but um, so there's a girl called Nicola Dixon and she was, I believe, 17 years of age, and it was a New Year's Eve, very snowy New Year's Eve, and she was murdered on Trinity Hill, exactly the same place where the attack had started following me and where it all happened, and she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was a completely random attack. Um, she was raped and then bludgeoned with a rock by the rapist, and he disposed of her body at, just on the garden next hill in the back of the, I think it was the Vicar's Garden, because it's a big, obviously it's, as I say, a big church. Um, now, it's always felt that Nicola put up a really good fight when she was being attacked, because they found her, his DNA under her fingernails, and they found scrapes on her legs that looked like she was trying to climb the gate, which went from Trinity Hill to the, to the churchyard. It looks like she tried to climb that to get away from him. Mm -hmm. I believe that Nicola put up a really, really good fight, but he obviously 
they look at a big fella, the guy who they caught to the end who did it. I always feel that day, and it's weird because I'd always had that sensation about Trinity Hill that I always felt this presence that put me off going down and I say I hesitated before I went down. But actually, Nicola was looking down that day and it was almost like, she's like, this is not happening again. No way is this happening. And I felt there was an intervention by her spirit or whatever else that caused that everything just fell into place for me. The men who came to help me, the young lads who came running and ripped him off me when he was coming up for the second time. The fact that there were police officers in the town centre on foot patrol who heard it came running. Everything fell into place. Even the air ambulance have said the crew on that, and one of them was a military doctor who, you know, seen horrific things. And even he said, Natalie, the angels were on your side that day. Mm. We don't know how you're alive. I mean, it really is a miracle. It's yeah. a miracle that you're both here. And I just think, you know, there is a lot of evil and darkness in the world. So to hear you with that hope and that because it could go either way you could be you know the victim that could stay with you your life and you say no there's no hope there's nothing good in the world you know you could totally have gone the other way yeah I mean you, you literally there is that tipping point you know um and I, I'll put my hands up to the fact that um I talk about it in the TED, TEDx is that there were birds wish that I hadn't survived there were days that I wished, genuinely wished, oh my gosh, I wish I hadn't thought, why did I fight to stay alive? Or I wish I could end it all now. There were days that I was petrified because my mum's literally moved in with me and lived with me and she's amazing. I have an incredible mum. And, and I was scared in those first few weeks and months to be left alone in the house because I had enough drugs in the house with all my pain relief i had different morphine things for all the different pain and i was to literally knock myself completely out and i was scared to be left alone because i thought i don't know if i trust myself enough to not do it to not go to the cupboard and and just check out mm -hmm. and i went through all of those thoughts went through all of those feelings but then i'd look at my kids and I remembered why I was fighting and the whole point was I was fighting for them mm -hmm. and ultimately nothing else literally mattered it was all about them and that's what then gave me my fight of right I'm going to get up I'm going to do my makeup I'm going to get dressed I'm going to look like mum I'm going to act like mum even if I'm hurting and I'm broken I've got to put this facade on which is which is what I did and you do you, you have a choice you have a choice to simple swim so and you know it's that whole survive giving that I talk about and genuinely giving in was ne never ever going to be an option love one because you you have unconditional love for your beautiful daughters and yeah. love one you know yeah. love love always wins it's the strongest power we have yeah. um even when all the darkness can <laughs> just make it seem too hard yeah having that force of love is just power right there you know and it gives you hope and there's so much that happens that we can't understand but having that faith you know and saying you know i do believe in angels i do believe in a, a greater power that everything is going to be okay and i believe that music is a gift and i believe that that song 
which I'll, I'll put at the end of this when I'm editing it, you know, everything is going to be all right. You know, there's songs that are important to you. You know, I'm still standing and by Elton and there's, there's songs that are, are helping get you, get you through and remembering that you are still standing and you're, you're, you know, you stand tall because you're, you're a survivor. And that's the thing I love about the song, you know, though I'm still standing, and hence why the book ended up being called Still Standing. Um, had to knock the eye off so that Sorelson didn't sue me. Um, but <laughs> hence why it's called Still Standing, and not I'm Still Standing. Um, as my publishers have pointed out tactfully, nasty, you don't want to get sued by Sorelson and John. I was like, no, true. Um, but in I'm Still Standing, you know, it's um, I'm Still Standing. Um, Best than I ever did, looking like a true survivor, feeling like a little kid, and that summed everything up. You know, I was still standing best than I ever did. I was looking like a survivor, but I genuinely was feeling like a kid because I needed so much help and support. And as an adult, I'd reached out for any help or support. Yet all of a sudden, you know, right from having to have my mum support me and my psychologist support me, I had different friends, or and also I was allowing these people to support and come into my life you know not loads of them but you know select number so that song for me just embodied exactly everything and hence why the book got called still standing it's a, it's amazing what you're doing it, it really is and you should be so proud and your girls will be so proud of you <laughs> it's just amazing and you are going to teach them so much and they're going to grow up and do amazing things too. So just please keep it up. No. And, uh, it's, it's been such an honor to be working with you and uh, watching you get prepared for this. Uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. This will go live after it's all happened and I'll share the video link, but it just, it really is an honor to, to get. Well, no, thank you for all your support and yeah, just everything, the whole support, the running through, the ideas, the visualisation, yeah, just positive power, brilliant. <laughs> so. Well, you're amazing. So thank you for everything you've shared on this podcast and and roll on, you know, the future is yours. Yeah. Keep, keep the faith. Keep the faith. It is keeping the faith, even when it's really tough. <laughs> so. It can be so tough, but you're a superstar, so thank you. No worries, no worries. What a girl. I just love how she kept a sense of humour. She kept hope, faith, courage. Um, just an incredible person. Um, really, really blown away by that discussion. Hope you enjoyed, guys, and could take something from it. And what a song. What a gift. Music is the ultimate gift. Don't worry about a thing Cause every little thing it's gonna be alright. Why do I keep losing my voice this year? Am I talking too much? <laughs> About a thing. Cause every little thing is gonna be alright. Every little thing is gonna be alright. That is a mantra for life, guys. If you're struggling, just keep telling yourself it's gonna be alright. It's gonna be alright. I am worthy of love. I'm worthy of kindness. I'm worthy to be treated well. And when we're not, how can we sort of grow from that? How can we go on and pull on Natalie and do amazing things? She's a motivational speaker. She's 
you know, writing. She's, she's doing amazing things, doing a TEDx. After all of that, she's still standing. It's gonna be alright. Right, it's painful. I'm not going to sing too much this week. I need to rest my voice. But guys, thank you for being here. Be all in. Wherever you are this week, be there fully and be kind to yourself. Mwah.